Has God been good to you? I heard a few amens. I saw a few heads shaking. Has God been good to you? Amen. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10 is our passage this morning. Um, in the Psalms, David writes, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Last week when we were um, studying, Matt uh, finished off with verse 3 of the passage in First uh, Peter 2, 3. Indeed, you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. You know, the Bible tells us, and our own experience walking with the Lord shows us that the Lord is good. Maybe we can just, uh, Jen, if we could just update that slide there, if we could. One, one more. There we go. Okay. The Bible tells us uh, that the Lord is good. The Lord does good, gives good gifts, satisfies us with His goodness, withholds no good thing from those who walk uprightly, and causes all things to work together for good. Every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father. The reality is that we have tasted the goodness of the Lord. Just think about how good the Lord has been to you. God saw you in your sins. I think David mentioned this in the Lord's Supper this morning of where he came from. And if we look back at where we came from and what the Lord did for us, he saw us in our sins. And he loved us so much that he gave his one and only son to die on the cross for our sins, to shed his blood for us. In Psalm 103, verses 1 through 5, we read, He forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. He satisfies your desires with good things. We have experienced the goodness of God throughout our lives. And the Bible says in that famous Psalm 23 that we've all memorized as children, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And he's not going to just end it there. There, at the end, he says, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. As a child of God, each one of you has an amazing story to tell of your salvation and the goodness of God in your own individual experience. Before we um, knew the Lord, we were far from Him. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And now that you are a child of God, He has so much more in store for you. God is in the, we're going to see this this morning, God is in the building program, and He is building a new temple. And you say, oh, that's exciting. A new temple in Israel? Isn't that going to be a fulfillment of prophecy? Yes, it is, but I'm not going to be talking about that temple this morning. Uh, God is building a new temple, and you are the new temple as believers. You are 
the new temple. God has also introduced a new priesthood, and you are the new priesthood, believers. So let's look at what the Lord is doing in your life. Let's read uh, 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word, to which they were also, which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So this section begins by reminding us that as believers, we enjoy access to God. Coming to Him, it says. That's how it starts. Sometimes we lose sight of the fact of how amazing that is, that we as believers who once were far off from God now have this intimacy with Him where we can come directly into His presence. Not just that we can come into His presence, but that we can come boldly into His presence. We are a special class of people who enjoy distinctive spiritual favors from God because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Your unsaved neighbors don't have access to God. The unsaved people you work with don't have the privilege of coming boldly into the presence of the Lord. As much as your unsaved relatives might want to ask God God's favor for their life, they can't enter into the presence of God. But you can as a believer. Believers, we should find ourselves coming to Him as to a living stone. Now, if you remember the context of this book, Peter is writing to believers who are suffering. Life isn't going the way they expected it to. They are persecuted, hurting, troubled on every side, and need help. And the Lord opens wide his arms, and he says, Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Some of you are suffering through trials, through difficulties, and the world is filled with so many cares, so much anxiety, so many worries. And the Lord comes alongside us and says, casting all your care upon him, for he cares 
for you. Peter, I'm sorry, uh, David wrote, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He invites us to come to him, to make our requests known to him, to plead our, our cause, our case uh, before him. Come to him as to a living stone. He is the source of every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. We come to him to abide with him, to learn from him, to grow and to enjoy his presence in our lives. And then as we draw near to the Lord, we find that the Lord is busy about um, working out a great plan in our lives, but in a, in a much greater plan uh, worldwide and an eternal plan as well. And so we are part of that plan. He is building a new temple and he is establishing a new priesthood. It may surprise you, as I mentioned earlier, that you are the new temple, and you are the new priesthood. So let's take a look at this. Um, you are the new temple, first of all. You remember the story in the Old Testament? Uh, David had, uh, uh, had fought many battles, and uh, he came to a point in his life where he decided, I, I know what I want to do. I want to build a temple for God. And God said, no, I'm not going to let you. You have too much blood on your hand from all the battles. But I will let your son build the temple. So Solomon uh, built the, uh, the temple, the first temple uh, for God, where God's presence would be known and where the people of God would come and worship the Lord. In 2 Chronicles 2, starting with verse 4, it says, Solomon said, Behold, I am building a temple for the name of the Lord my God to dedicate it to him. And the temple which I build will be great, for our God is greater than all gods. But who is able to build him a temple since heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him? Who am I then that I should build him a temple except to burn sacrifices before him? In 1 Kings 5, we read Solomon had 70,000 men who carried burdens and 80,000 who quarried stone in the mountains. And the king commanded them to quarry large stones, costly stones, and hewn stones to lay the foundation of the temple. And when the temple was uh, completed and furnished, the Ark of the Covenant was placed inside the inner sanctuary of the most holy place. And it says in 1 Kings 8, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. After Solomon built the temple, he prayed at the dedication, and in 2 Chronicles 6 we read, but, God, but will God indeed dwell with men on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. Yet regard the prayer of your servants and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you, that your eyes may be open toward this temple day and night, toward the place where you said you would put your name, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place." And may you hear the supplications of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place, 
Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. In 2 Chronicles 7, when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. When all the children of Israel saw how fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. The Lord is good. Now in 1 Peter chapter 2, as we read through that section, Peter describes God's temple, but he's not speaking about a temple like the one we're showing made by uh, inanimate blocks of limestone cut out of a mountain. He is talking about the church. And the church is not this beautiful building or any other beautiful building like it. He's not talking about a building. He's talking about the church. The church is not a building. The church is the people who make up uh, the body of Christ. The church is made up of living people. And through the church, God manifests himself to the world today. And the glory of the Lord should fill his church. And I'm saying that God shows himself to the world today through his people, the church. And individually, we should be filled with the Spirit of God. And that, as we go out into the world, people should see the glory of the Lord as we uh, live our life for him in the world. So Peter first describes the cornerstone of this new building. It says, we come to him, or coming to him, as to a living stone. And Peter identifies Jesus Christ by using the metaphor living stone. And the, ter the term uh, refers to a stone or a block um, in the new temple. The block in the new temple is Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone. Now, when you lay a foundation, when you lay the cornerstone in a building, it determines the lines of the rest of the building. It determines the horizontal lines, both directions. It determines the vertical line of the, of the building. And the cornerstone of a building is perfectly shaped uh, to establish the lines of the building as well as its design and form. We come to him as a living stone. He is alive. That, that, that word living tells us that that stone is alive. It's not a dead, inanimate limestone block. It's a living stone. Jesus Christ is alive. Uh, he not only rose from the dead and is alive forevermore, but he also gives life to all those who trust him. It is from him that all spiritual blessings flow. Now, there is a story that is told. It could be a legend. I don't know. But it keeps, I keep finding it over and over again as, I, as you look at um, uh, commentaries on the, uh, on the term cornerstone that during the construction of Solomon's temple, great stone blocks were 
cut out of the mountain, as we read in uh, the Old Testament. They had a quarry, and then they moved those stones. They, they were uh, cut in the quarry instead of on site because no uh, steel instrument was to be used in the building of the temple on site. And so they made the blocks to uh, the plans that they had at this quarry. But there was one stone as, that was delivered to the job site in uh, Jerusalem. And when the builders looked at it, they said, this doesn't fit. It doesn't fit anything in this building. And because they had limited space or whatever, they just said, this is a useless stone. It's good for nothing. And they literally threw it over the side of the hill and it landed in a grassy heap. Some say it landed in a pathway um, of, the, of the route up to the top of the, uh, of the mountain or the hillside. And so they didn't keep it on the building site. They pushed it over the hill. And it uh, grew moss and grass around it, and everybody forgot that it was even there. But when it came time to lay the cornerstone, they sent message to the quarry and said, we need a particular stone. It has to be unique. It has to be strong. It has to be these dimensions. And word was sent back to the building site. And we, they said, we've already sent it. It's already there. And they looked among the stones at the job site and they couldn't find it until finally they went exploring down the hill and found that the stone that the builders rejected had become encased with grass and moss and everything else like that, but it was the chief cornerstone. Jesus is the living stone, rejected indeed by men, Peter says, but chosen by God and precious. Men rejected Jesus when he came. He was the chief cornerstone that God provided, and men rejected him. It says in John chapter 1, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. The Jews of his day sized him up. They looked him over, and they said, you don't fit. You don't belong. You're not what we're expecting. We are expecting the Messiah. Who are you? The blueprint in their minds called for a deliverer from Roman oppression. Their drawings called for Jewish national freedom. But he didn't measure up to their expectations, so they rejected him, and people still reject him today. But what does God the Father say? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus is the chosen one, and he is precious. He is chosen by men, by God, but rejected by men. When people refuse to, to um, refuse the one chosen by God, they've eliminated their only way of salvation. In the book of Acts, when Peter preached to the Jewish uh, leaders who had rejected Jesus, he said this in Acts 4. Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. That was uh, a man had been healed. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other 
for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. John says, but as many as receive him, to them he gives the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. And, and those who believe in him, the Bible tells us here in 1 Peter 2, become living stones. 1 Peter 2.5, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, and we trust in Him for salvation, He makes us stones in His temple. Again, not inanimate objects, but we are living stones building up as part of His holy temple. And believers are the building blocks of this living temple. So let's, take a, let's consider the Lord Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone uh, for just a moment. Jesus told Peter, when, Peter uh, when Jesus asked him, who do you say that I am? And he was very clear that Jesus Christ was, in fact, the Son of God. He was God. And, and the Lord Jesus said to him, on this rock, I will build my church. Now here in Peter, uh, 1 Peter 2, 4, he identifies Jesus as the living stone. And Peter then says, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house. Paul says that you are members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And so God has undertaken this building program to build a new temple, and you, dear believer, are living stones in this temple. We have become the dwelling place of God. God is not dwelling in a, in a man-made structure built of stones. He is dwelling in the lives and the hearts of us as believers. We have become the dwelling place of God. Uh, Paul says, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. The church is the new temple of God. Get out of your mind the building. Okay? It is, he's using it as an illustration. He's raising up a building, a temple, that, where the Lord uh, can feel at home. In 1 Peter 2, 6 through 8, let's just read that again. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. Um, Peter is actually quoting here, from Isaiah chapter 28, verses 16 and 17. And it's an interesting read. 
um, if you go back to that. We won't have time for that today, but the context is this. Isaiah was warning the Jewish nation that their trust in foreign nations to defend them would ultimately lead to death for them. The only sure foundation that they had was to have faith in the Lord to deliver them, to trust in the Lord. The only sure foundation was to trust in the Lord who has a history of protecting them. And in Isaiah 28, 16, it says this, Therefore, says, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. Also, I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plummet. A cornerstone is the most important stone to be set in place in a building. It positions the building where the architect wants it to be. It marks the starting point of the horizontal and vertical lines. It bears the weight of all that is built upon it, so it has to be solid. We sing, and we're going to sing this at the end, on Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. The Lord established the foundation of this new temple upon Jesus Christ, and the full weight of that building rests upon Him and His endurance, which is eternal. Then He says, we read in this slide that you see, that attached to that cornerstone is the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And he's talking about what we have right here in the scripture. On this rock, the rock of his word, we also stand. So upon him and upon the teachings of the word of God, we take our stand. But when God sent his cornerstone to Israel, they rejected him and did not believe in him. And just as the builders rejected the unusual quarry stone, even so the Lord Jesus was rejected by the Jewish people, especially the Jewish religious leaders. And they ultimately cast him out of the city and crucified him on the cross. But now the message of the cross goes out. Uh, it goes out to the Jews and it goes out to the Gentiles. And it's a very simple message Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He was buried, and he rose again the third day. And if you believe in him, he will give to you eternal life. He will give to you forgiveness of sins. He will give to you a home in heaven. He will save you from the wrath to come. He will deliver you from an eternity in the lake of fire. And yet, most people reject this message. Just like the builders rejected Jesus when he came, most people today reject this same message. And they believe that they're good enough to get to heaven on their own. They believe that righteousness comes from doing good or by obeying the Ten Commandments. But the gospel message goes out and says, no, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But people trip on that message. And it's like that stone that got thrown over the side of the hill. And people trip on it. And they go, we don't need that. We don't need Jesus. We'll get to heaven on our own. But people who reject it, uh, reject the message of the Lord Jesus Christ, stumble on the simplicity 
of the gospel message. And because they refuse to believe that Jesus is the only Savior, they trip over him on their way to hell. They are destined for eternal punishment, not because he can't save them, but they refused to believe uh, in God's only way of salvation. Men have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone, but he was chosen, a chosen one by God, and he is precious. Not only is he precious to God, but for those of us who have believed, he is precious to us too. He who was rejected has become the chief cornerstone. It's interesting. We have a different picture on um, the screen right now. The, uh, the word cornerstone can literally mean the corner, the, the foundational corner of a building. But it can also mean a, a capstone or a um, topstone of um, a building, like an arch. And if you notice the red marking on that stone, it's a different shape. It looks different than everything else. And I think it's appropriate to look at it both ways. Not only is he the cornerstone of the, the temple, but he is the chief cornerstone, the highest pinnacle. And we see this in uh, Philippians chapter 2, 9, 9 through 11. As we read through Philippians 2, we see that, that Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. But therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. We are living stones in this temple that he is building. We are to be holy stones within the building, the temple of God. And the Lord has uh, honored us by uh, dwelling in his new temple, his people, the church. All right, let's look at the second part of this passage. We are the new priesthood. So go back to verse 5. It says, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. There is a new temple, and you are the living stones in the new temple. The church is the temple of God on earth today, but since there's a new temple, it is logical that there must be a new priesthood, because the old priesthood will not do in this new temple. You are a holy priesthood. God established a priesthood, if you remember back in the Old Testament, he established a priesthood to serve him in the original temple. Priests were to be God's representatives to the Jewish people, and they were to offer the sacrifices brought to them by the people to God. So they acted as um, mediators, people in between God and man. But it's interesting as you look at the qualifications of the Old Testament priests, um, not everybody was qualified. So I never, ever could be qualified to be a priest in the Old Testament. Why? I was born a Gentile, and most of you were too. So you're eliminated, you're excluded, 
to serve the Lord as a priest, they were to be holy men. They had to be from the right nation. They had to be Jews. That was one of the first qualifications. But then, if you remember, I think Noad um, a week or so ago mentioned that he had been reading in the Old Testament and he came across the passage of how the Lord, when he delivered uh, Israel out of Egypt, uh, he saved the firstborn son of all of the Israelite people. And that firstborn son was to be dedicated to the Lord of every tribe. But then the Lord limited or reduced it down to one tribe, the tribe um, of Levi. And they were to represent the firstborn sons of all of the rest of Israel. So they had to be Jews. They had to be chosen by God from the tribe of Levi. And then they had to be born into the right family. They had to be descendants of Aaron. So you're not only not qualified, you're not qualified, you're not qualified, you're not qualified. And then they had to be special. They had to be of a certain age. They had to be consecrated by the anointing of oil. They had to be clothed in certain garments for this service to the Lord. That's what priests had to be like. Those were the qualifications uh, for the priests in the Old Testament temple. But you, the Bible says here in 1 Peter, are a holy priesthood. You are a holy priesthood. You are the new priests. And what are the qualifications? You must be holy. Jesus Christ has made you, verse 5, a holy priesthood. You must be from the right nation. Verse 9, Jesus Christ has made you a holy nation. You must be chosen by God. Verse 9, you are a chosen generation. You must be born into the right family. Well, you are a child of God, a royal priesthood. You couldn't be in a better family, more qualified. You must be special, just as they were special. It says in verse uh, 9, I believe, that his own special people, set apart by the anointing of the Spirit of God and clothed in garments of salvation, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Now, the former priests were set apart to serve the Lord, and you are set apart to serve the Lord, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God. In other words, you were not Jewish. You were not born into the right nation. You were Gentiles. Yes, you're qualified in this new priesthood because God has made you qualified. You were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but, have now, but now have obtained mercy. Why has God invited us into his presence and service as a holy priesthood? Peter says, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ and to proclaim his praises. Now, in the Old Testament, the priests offered animal sacrifices, blood sacrifices. But there is one sacrifice that has already been made, and it trumps everything else. The, the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ 
was sacrificed to God on our behalf so that now we can come to him boldly and offer other sacrifices to him. They're not animal sacrifices. They're not grain sacrifices. But there are at least seven spiritual sacrifices we can offer as a holy priesthood. First of all, our body. I think this is one of the most well-known of the sacrifices. In um, Romans 12, 1, it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship or your reasonable service. How do we do this? Come to him each day and say, Lord, here are my hands. Use them for your service. Here are my feet, Lord. Bring me to someone in need of the gospel today. I offer my lips, my tongue to speak the truth, to praise your name, to build up the saints. Here's my mind, intellect, emotions, and will. Use them for your glory. Take not just part of me, Lord, but take all of me in your service. I offer my body to do your bidding in life or in death. I offer my body a sacrifice to you, um, a living sacrifice. Second, our praise. It's another sacrifice. It says in Hebrews 13, 15, Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. It is a good thing to give thanks to the Lord, especially when we consider what he has saved us from. But you know, the Lord day by day comforts us, cares for us, provides for us, provides for us, answers prayer. He comes near to us. He, he builds us up. He strengthens us. He is good and does good. And every gift from him is good. And so we have so much fuel for praise because the Lord is good and does good. Third, another sacrifice is our good works. It says that we are to do good works for others, especially for other believers, the household of faith. And that's called a sacrifice. With such sacrifices, God is well pleased. And so as we look at the needs of the saints, as we look at the needs of other believers, we should be quick to meet those needs. We should be quick to come alongside and to help. Um, and it's, it's true of helping unsaved people too, but it says especially the household of faith. Uh, fourth, another sacrifice, our possessions. The same verse, Hebrews 13, 16, tells us to share. That means that God has blessed you with money, uh, possessions. Well, make sure that you share those things with others. And this, too, fits under the category, with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Remember, and I think we have to keep remembering this day by day, that everything we have belongs to God. We say, our house, our car, our money, our bank account, our retirement, our wallet, our purse. Well, whether it's any of those things or other things like it, they belong to him. And God is trusting you with your possessions that you might use them 
to serve him and that you might use them to help others as well. And so that's a sacrifice. When you use them that way, it is a sacrifice that is well-pleasing to the Lord. This, this one may surprise you a little bit, but our witness to others is actually a sacrifice to the Lord. Paul um, ministered among the Gentiles, and he served the Lord in preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, and it was a priestly service. The Gentiles who were saved under his ministry, uh, Paul says, were offered to God as a spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God. Lord, I'm giving my life to reaching these people, and as they come to you, I am offering them up to you as a spiritual sacrifice uh, for what you have done for them. So as we witness, that is actually a spiritual sacrifice to the Lord. Number six, our love for others. In Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, Paul tells us that Christ loved us and gave himself for us and that his death, that his death was an offering a sacrifice to God as a sweet-smelling aroma. Then Paul tells us to imitate him, imitate such love. And that love which the Lord demonstrated to us, if that is a sweet-smelling sacrifice to God, then our love for others is also a sweet-smelling sacrifice uh, to the Lord. Number seven. Our prayers. Did you know that as you pray, that that is a sacrifice to the Lord? The command to pray is given repeatedly in the New Testament, and our prayers are like an offering of incense, a sweet-smelling uh, incense to the Lord, because it shows uh, it shows the Lord that as we call upon His name, we are trusting in Him. As we ask the Lord to accomplish things in our life or in the lives of others, we are really saying, Lord, I trust you to do this. And that is a sacrifice that is honoring to the Lord, a sweet-smelling incense to the Lord. In Revelation 8, 3, and 4, we read about heaven and how an angel offers incense to the Lord, and mixed in with this incense is the prayer of all the saints. It's a beautiful picture of what the Lord thinks of our prayers to him. Believers, you are living stones in this building, this new temple that the Lord is building. And you are a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. How should that affect your life? Come to the Lord and say, Lord, make me the man of God that you intend for me to be. Make me the woman of God that you intend for me to be. Here is my intellect, my emotions, my will. Here is my body, my praise, and my life. Here are my possessions. Here is my time for good works. Here is my service, my love, and my prayers. Take me, all of me, and use me as you see fit. Lord, I offer myself, not in part, but entirely to you. And then do it again tomorrow. And then do it again the next day. And the next day. And the next. And each day, offer all of you, all that you are and all that you have to him, 
and he will use you, and he will be pleased with such sweet sacrifices to him. Let's give him thanks. Lord, as we come before you this morning, we declare once again that you are good and you do good. Lord, as we look back at we who are not a people, you've made the people of God a special uh, people, a special nation, a, uh, a building, a new temple, a new priesthood. And Lord, as we come before you, we thank you for your goodness to us. And we ask you, Lord, that you might receive from us all of the sacrifices that we can give to you out of just love for you, for what you have done for us. Lord, here and now we offer, to our, we offer ourselves to you afresh, our lives and everything connected with our lives, Lord, we give to you. And pray, Lord, that you would receive our sacrifices as a sweet-smelling aroma to you of praise and thanksgiving for what you've done for us. In Jesus' name. Let's stand in closing by singing number 392, number 392, The Solid Rock, number 392. All right, let's stand and sing.